it's good to be back up here. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, I, I, the elders gave me the month of August off of preaching, so I haven't been preaching for a month. Uh, we had various speakers, some of the elders, some guest speakers, and that was so that I could kind of take that month to prepare for the upcoming sermon series, which is not this one. <laughs> next week, next week we're starting the new sermon series. Uh, but we kind of had this one week before we started, and I thought, what, what am I going to speak on? What, what do I, I could take any one thing that I just love to talk about. What am I going to speak on? And I looked at the schedule, and I saw Communion Sunday. I don't often preach on communion on Communion Sunday. So I thought, what a great idea to talk about coming to the Lord's table. Now, also, I should say that at this point in the service, normally we'd be dismissing the kids to Children's Church, uh, we don't have children's church on the first Sunday of the month. We do extend the nursery age, I think, by one year. Uh, but the reason for that is is because we want them to either participate with us in communion, if they're ready to do so and understand what that is, and we'll be talking about that this morning, or at the very least to watch the church take communion. There's something powerful in seeing the people of God be obedient to our Lord as we take communion. And hopefully it raises some great questions from those kids to their parents. Hey, what in the world was with the cracker and the juice? What is this all about? And we can talk to them about Jesus. But today I want to talk about what communion is. And I've called this come to the table. This is kind of a call that goes out in our house when it's time to eat. Everybody come, everybody come to the table. It's usually preceded by the call all hands on deck. That's, that's something we use in my family, like please get to the kitchen and help. And then it's, okay, now come to the table. And you know, throughout history, it's interesting how cultural things change and how some things stay somewhat the same. Sharing a meal with people has always been all about relationships. It's been a powerful indicator of the relationships between human beings when they come and they share a meal together. Now, I think it was even more so in the ancient Near Eastern world, but we still have that today. Hopefully, some of you invite people from church over for dinner from time to time. Hopefully, you get to know people in your neighborhood. There's this built-in kind of implicit idea that I want to get to know you. I want to spend time with you. Come, come to the table. Let's sit and share a meal together. But imagine now, imagine you are a worker at a massive corporation. Okay, maybe you just work on the assembly line or, or in the factory or, or the, the filing room or whatever. And out of the blue, you get a call from the CEO or the owner of your company. Never met this person. They don't even live in the same state. And you get this call from on high. Hey, I'd like you to come over to my house for dinner. And you go, oh, wow, you're having a bunch of people over? No, I just, just you and your family. Just come on over. I want to hang out with you and get to know you better and have you get to know me better. That'd be kind of a big deal. Now, some of you are thinking of, well, I know my boss, and I don't think I'd like that. But think, it's kind of an honor still that this person way up here on the totem pole of this corporation would reach down and say, hey, I want to get to know you. Now, maybe it'll help you to think about someone you admire. 
Maybe a, a great scientist or an inventor or sports person or an actor. Or just somebody that you look up to in this world that you think, oh, it'd be amazing to meet that person. Imagine getting that phone call. Hey, I heard about you. I'd like to invite you over to my house for dinner. Just mind blown, right? Side story. This is actually pretty funny. Just thought of this. I had a friend named Corey when I was in high school. And, and we... Uh, we had this band we really liked. They were called the Altar Boys. I don't know if anybody's heard of them. Probably nobody's heard of them. It was like a Christian punk band. Okay? And Corey had in his head, we're going to get the Altar Boys to come to our high school to play. And so he sent, I don't know, there probably was an email at that time. He sent a letter or a call or something. He's in his kitchen one day and the phone rings. Now, this, this is actually really funny. The lead singer of the Altar Boys, his name was Mike Stand. Like... <laughs> No joke, that was his name. I don't know if it was his birth name, but that was his name at the time. So Corey gets a call, and the guy on the other, other end of the phone says, hey, this is Mike Stand. <laughs> and Corey goes, shut up, and he hangs up the phone. <laughs> I get a call from him, he's like, I just hung up the phone on Mike Stand, I can't believe it. Anyway, that means nothing to you, but that's kind of what it was to Corey, like this incredible honor of somebody that he looked up to. I'm sad to say it never panned out, they didn't come and play, it would have been amazing. Didn't actually get to meet Mike Stand that day, uh, but anyway, I thought it was a great story, you don't care, but whatever. <laughs> but this idea of a relationship, and like an honor and honoring of someone by inviting us into the relationship is all implicit in this idea of come to the table. When we think about communion, we are talking about a very special table, a very special meal with incredible rich significance. And my job this morning is to help us to prepare for this meal. Not just for this morning, but so that every time you take communion, you have a better understanding of what it is you're doing. What does this mean? And so I want to talk about what it means to come to the Lord's table. And we need to start with the relationship. Why does God give us this picture of a meal and invite us to this meal? And is this just a New Testament communion thing, or does this run throughout all of Scripture? And let me start with this question. Does God want to have a close, personal relationship with you? Nice! As we close in prayer... Uh, Love it when the kids are here. They actually talk back. This is great. Yes. Now, here's the thing, though, and I love that you shouted that out because that's the right answer. But here's the thing. Some of you, some of you, I think maybe the rational side of you, the I want to be a good student sort of side, I want to do the right thing, probably in your head you're thinking, yes. But then the personal side of you that knows your story and your background and maybe feels the weight of shame and guilt, the answer comes out. I don't think he does. I don't know that God really wants to have a close personal relationship with me. How do I know I matter enough to God? Isn't he busier with bigger things? Plus, why would he want to get to know me? I know me and I'm ashamed. 
So we need to go through this. Does Scripture give us a picture of a God who wants to have a close, personal relationship with him? Now, we're going to be flying through Scripture today. This was interesting as I finished this up, because next week we're starting a sermon series that's going to go from Genesis to Revelation. That's, That's what the sermon series is. We're going to go all the way from from next week through Easter. We'll take the Old Testament before Christmas. We'll take the New Testament after Christmas. So that's the next sermon series. Today, we're going to do some of that, actually, uh, because we need to get this big picture of who God is and what he has done. Open up to Genesis chapter 1. We've got to start with creation. This is interesting because if you were in adult Sunday school this morning, this is what uh, Chris took us through, kind of what is the meaning of creation and how does it impact us as stewards of everything that God has given us. But today I want us to look at the idea of relationship. Do we have a picture in Scripture of a God who cares enough to want a close, personal relationship with each and every person? When we come to scripture, we see from the very beginning, God creates everything. God creates everything and it is good. God creates humanity and he says it is very good. And he creates this garden, this incredible garden in this good creation. And that's where he puts Adam and Eve. And the implication in scripture, especially if you dig into some of the cultural studies of the Old Testament times that this was written in, what is clear is this whole setup of this garden as this meeting place between God and man emphasizes God wants a relationship with these people he committed. He didn't just wind us up like a toy and set us on the edge and say, go, good luck with this thing called life. No, he wants to be with us and have a relationship with us. There is a little, we're going to be looking at some interesting, I think often overlooked verses today. And this is one of them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Now, if you know a little bit about the beginning of the the Bible, you know that Adam and Eve, they sin, they take the fruit when they're not supposed to, and they're kind of caught in their sin. And that's when this takes place. And, and we sort of overlook this verse because we're, we're interested, like, what's going to happen to Adam and Eve now? How much trouble are they in? But there's this beautiful verse. At the beginning of chapter 3, verse 8, it tells us, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I've always loved that passage. And and again, we skip over it because we want to look at what's going to happen to Adam and Eve when they get caught. But I love this picture of God hanging out in the Garden of Eden, just strolling Along, And there's nothing in Genesis chapter 3 that gives me any indication that this was a strange thing for God to do. God created the garden and put Adam and Eve there so that God could hang out with them, to just spend time with them. Could you imagine Adam and Eve going about their day before sin, obviously? Just, hey God, what's up? And God comes over, what are you doing? And they explain it to him and he's like, I actually knew already, but thanks for explaining it to me. He wants to be with them and have that relationship with them. Now, maybe you think, oh, pastor, you're reading way too much into a couple words. Okay. But is this what scripture says? If we flip forward to Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, we just bypassed a whole bunch of human history. 
God has reached out to this man named Abram. He's changed his name to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to have a relationship with you and with all of your offspring. We know them now as the Israelites, the Jewish people. But when he comes to Abraham in chapter 17, he's, he's built this relationship a little bit. But he says this, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. Well, isn't God the God of everybody? Isn't he the one true God over everyone? Well, yes. So why does he say, I will be their God? Because he wants a relationship with them. But we can go farther. Exodus chapter 29. God instructs the Israelites to build this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, where he will dwell as they're wandering through the wilderness. He will be there and he will meet with them. And his glory will descend on the tabernacle. And when that happens, they're to stop and they are to construct their camp. And when the glory ascends up out of the tabernacle, they're to go on and follow the pillar of fire by night and the cloud during the day. But as he gives them these instructions about the tabernacle, he says this, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I think too many of us today, kind of in our popular culture, we've absorbed an idea that God is just, if there is a God, he's out there somewhere, but he's not really involved and he doesn't really care. That is not the God of scripture. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Matthew chapter one, verse 23, we read this every year at Christmas. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. It, I love that we read this every year at Christmas, but sometimes when you read a passage over and over again, it starts to lose its meaning. Think about those three words, God with us. The all-powerful, sovereign creator of the universe wants to be with us. And he didn't just leave that as an abstract notion. He took on flesh. That's who Jesus is. God in the flesh. And he was born in a manger to be God with us. And as people that day walked around, they could look over and see Jesus strolling right there. Hey, Jesus, how are you doing? And Jesus could say, let me see what you're up to. I already know, but i like to hear it from you. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. I hope you're getting a better answer to this question. Does God want a personal relationship with you? We can fast forward to when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And he gives this great commission to all followers. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. These are the marching orders for the church. This is why we are a church, to carry that mission out. But we can't even begin to do it unless we accept that last sentence. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Does Jesus want a close personal relationship with his church, his people, each and every one of us? Absolutely. Then we can jump to the end of scripture. Revelation chapter 21 gives us this beautiful picture at the end of all time when sin has been dealt with and removed and we see God's kingdom set up and a new heavens and a new earth. And we hear this declared, Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We like to jump to that no more mourning or crying. Oh, won't it be great when there's no more sadness? Yes, it'll be great. But do you know what causes that? It's the passage or the sentence right before it. God's dwelling place is now among his people. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Because sin and sadness and sorrow and hurt and shame and guilt will be cast out from the presence of the Lord forever and ever. And we will stand in the presence of God, all those saved by Jesus Christ, unashamed and unafraid, and we will know for all of eternity, that's my God, and He has loved me enough to want to know me and for me to know Him and to have a close personal relationship with Him. God wants to have that kind of a relationship with each one of us. So when we come to this table, this meal, understand that it's implying, it's enforcing, it's reminding us of a relationship. A relationship between us and God. A closeness that God wants with us. But what happened? Look around the world, we turn on the TV, flip through articles on the internet. We don't see a world that seems to be operating the way that it should. What we see is a whole bunch of problems. And I would argue all of them come down to one problem that we must understand and we must accept when we take the Lord's table and communion together. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. In this passage, after God has created all things, the serpent comes to Eve and causes her to question something. He's particularly casting doubt on something God has told them. He says, you will not certainly die. He's talking about when you eat of the fruit. God had said, and the day you eat of it, you will die. And Satan goes, eh, really? Let's think this through. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That phrase, knowing good and evil, has been something I have studied a lot over the course of my life because I think it is so foundational to understand what this sin was, why this was such a big deal. And what I have come to find is that in the Hebrew mindset, this understanding of knowing good and evil implies the ability to determine what is good and determine what is evil. It is an authority 
to say, I will say what's good and evil. And God set it up that he says what's good and evil. And Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, wouldn't you like to be able to do that? And he goes further. It's like God is holding out on them. Satan is trying to tempt Adam and Eve to think God's holding something good back from you. He doesn't want you to have it. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Adam and Eve are putting themselves in the place of God's authority. God had said, this is right and this is wrong. And Adam and Eve said, we want the right to determine that for ourselves. We reject what God has said. This is why when people come to this sin in scripture, they struggle because they say, come on. It's like kid taking a cookie out of a jar. It's not that big a deal. How can there be all this punishment? It's because it is a big deal. It is a rejection of God's authority. It is rebellion against the creator of the universe. That's what sin is. And this problem is shown throughout all of Scripture to be awful. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Wrath? The wrath of God is being revealed against people, people that we just said the Bible says God wants a, pers- close, a personal close relationship with. How can he have wrath toward them? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.1 and 3, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Here's the problem. We have a loving God who created us to have a close personal relationship with him. And we rebelled against him. We have made ourselves enemies of God. We deserve to be punished. And that punishment is death. So how, how when we gather around as a church, how can we talk about love and grace and mercy? How can we call this thing communion, which is about relationship, if this is the picture that we're preaching, a loving God that now hates us because we're sinners? At this point, some people want to get up and walk out. And I appreciate you staying put to hear the rest of the story. Because there is more to it. There is a solution. God is clear throughout all of Scripture that the problem that I just set up, the very problem that that Scripture sets up, this rebellion between us and God is not a problem you or I can can fix no matter what we do. We cannot fix the problem. But we see that God does. All the way back in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. They rebel against God. God said they would die, but they don't die right away. They're standing there ashamed of what they've done. 
they don't have any clothing and now they have just incredible shame and guilt and they're trying to hide and they're trying to cover themselves up. And there's this little verse, Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Clothed them. And this is the beginning of one of the most powerful themes in all of scripture that what Adam and Eve could not do for themselves, God did, but in order to do it, something had to die. An animal had to give its life so that their shame and guilt could be covered. You go, wait a minute, pastor. We're just talking about clothes here. Just put on some clothes. You're reading way too much into this. We skip forward to Genesis 22, verse 8. God comes to Abraham. God had promised Abraham a son. He has that son, Isaac. This is the child of the covenant, the child of the promise between God and his people. The one who would carry on God's promises. And yet God comes to Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, the son that that you love, take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Kill him. God wants somebody to kill their own child? And Isaac, the son, asks his father, Abraham, how is this going to happen? We have the wood, we're going up, but we don't have the sacrifice. And Abraham, a man of great faith in that moment, says, God will provide the sacrifice. He's trusting that God himself will provide the sacrifice. And sure enough, when they get up there and Abraham is about to be obedient, trusting that God will do what only God can do, God stops him and says, don't kill your son. And Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in some bushes. And he sacrifices that in the place of Isaac. God provided the sacrifice in the place of Isaac. If we flip forward a little bit more, we come to Exodus chapter 12, and I'm going to ask you to turn there. There's a lot here I want to read and I want to talk about. Because we come to the Passover, and the Passover is the precursor to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. Let me start reading in chapter 12, verse 1 of Exodus and read down through about 14 or so. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. He's declaring a new beginning to their calendar. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all of the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, this just sounds like God is kind of setting up some ritual for them. Just do this every year, kind of like we celebrate Christmas, Easter. Just do it every year. This will be good for you. (laughs) But the context here 
makes all the difference. Where are the Israelites when God tells them to do this? They are enslaved in Egypt. Heavily persecuted. Being put to death. They're stuck. And they've been crying out to the Lord. And he has come to them and said, I am going to deliver you. But on the night that I do, God says, I'm going to pass over the Egyptians. And the firstborn of each family is going to die. As modern sensible people, we read that and we go, how dare he? God can't do that. They have life because God gave it to them. Number two, nobody deserved to exist past the Garden of Eden. Nobody. Nobody here, nobody up here, nobody out there. None of us deserve to exist after the Garden of Eden and the original sin. Every moment of every life is a gift of grace. The Egyptians had been warned over and over and over and over again. And every single time they said, no, we will not submit to the Lord. God had warned them that this was going to happen. Still, they said, no, we will not submit. And so the night comes. And God is preparing his people for that night. And what is so amazing is on that night, when those who are Jewish descendants and are no more righteous than anybody else, and their people deserve to die too, God says, I'm going to provide a way for your life to be spared. And you're going to take a lamb And it's going to die in your place. And you're going to do this as an act of trust and an act of worship. Verse 12, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So God says, when I see the thing that was killed in your place, I will pass over and not bring judgment. I will show mercy. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. He tells them to prepare this meal. And the central part of this meal is a lamb that was to be as perfect as they could get. And that lamb was to be killed. And it's lifeblood put over their house, over their doorway. And it was a symbol that they were trusting in God and God's way of salvation. There are so many times in Scripture where God asks his followers to do something that seems ridiculous. And every single time it's because he wants them to trust him. And then, as this is going on, the people of Israel were to share a meal together. And every year after this, they were to repeat that meal to remember that God had saved them. Here in the Passover, we have all the elements that are important when we come to the Lord's table. We are guilty and we deserve to die. But God has provided a substitute in our place. And we are to celebrate that and remember that and trust that. All of this points to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he sees Jesus. And what does he say about Jesus? There's a great righteous man. There's a great teacher. He says, look, the Lamb of God. What Lamb? Where did John get that from? Passover. The Lamb of God. 
that would save his people. Just like the Passover lamb took the place of the Israelites, Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes our place on the cross. Peter develops this in 1 Peter 1, 18-21. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. There's the solution to the problem. Jesus is the solution to the problem. And it is in trusting in Jesus as being our substitute that we are saved. So why communion? I pray and I hope that each person here has accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's my hope. And we know that it's what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection that saves us. Taking communion doesn't get you to heaven. Doesn't save you. Doesn't make you more righteous. There's nothing magical about the cracker and the juice. But God commands us to do this. Why? Because he knows we forget. And he wants us to come to the table to remember. This meal shows us and reminds us that we have a God who loves us that wants a close personal relationship with us. It reminds us that we are sinners, completely lost, desperate and helpless, unable to save ourselves. It reminds us that God provided the substitute, the Lamb of God, to die in our place. And it reminds us Day in and day out, we need Jesus. We need him. There's one more obscure passage I want to look at. In the book of Exodus, when God brought his people out, brings them up to a mountain, and maybe you've heard of the Ten Commandments, gives them the Ten Commandments, begins to give them the law. It's a powerful scene. There's like lightning and thunder, and people are like, God's on the mountain with Moses. This is incredible. And in the middle of this incredible scene, there is something that I have overlooked over and over again when I read these passages. It is Exodus 24, 9 to 11. Moses comes back down the mountain... And he gets these leaders, Aaron, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And it tells us, they went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they what? They had a meal. You talk about somebody important inviting you to a meal. The God of heaven and earth invited the leaders of his people and he said, come, share a meal with me. We fast forward a couple thousand years. And on the night before he's crucified, Jesus sits down with his disciples and he has a meal. Matthew 26, 17 to 19, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, this is the Passover. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover. Verse 
with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. He goes on, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat this. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see the elements of the meal there? The first thing that's so powerful is that whenever the Jewish people took the Passover, somebody had to be the host. They were the ones to distribute the elements. They were in control of the situation. And they would often offer, like we would call it a devotional, almost like a little preaching, a sermon. Who's the host here? Jesus Christ. He gathers his disciples. And he hands out the elements. The second thing that we see is that he's, he's explaining all of this. He's talking about the relationship. We have God with us in the form of Jesus sharing a meal with us. The third thing we see is that he calls out that there is sin. That they are in need of salvation. In fact, I skipped over a part. It was the part where Judas is declared to be the betrayer of Jesus. Sin is right there and needs to be dealt with. We also see the solution. Jesus clearly points to himself as the ultimate Passover lamb. And finally, we see that as they eat this meal, they are proclaiming that they are trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when he explains the Lord's Supper to the church, he says that it's all about remembering. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what he's done for you. And when you take this, you are proclaiming the truth of what Jesus has done. So will you come to the table today? Every month when we take communion as a church, I always issue a warning that this communion, this meal is only for those saved by Jesus Christ. And that's because of everything I just said. Taking it is an expression of trust and faith in Jesus Christ and acknowledgement that we are sinners and that Jesus has saved us from our sins. Only someone who has accepted Christ as their Savior can do that. For anybody else, it would just be some other act. And the Bible says very clearly we are not to take this lightly but I want you to hear today, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that the invitation to come to the table is there. God made you and wants a relationship with you. He's done everything necessary to save you from your sins. He is calling you to accept His Son as your Savior and come to the table. So take this moment now, before we take communion, Spend some time in prayer. Say, God, I'm struggling. But I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And I accept you sent your son to die in my place. Thank you for the cross. Whenever we take communion, we need to understand what it's about. We need to ask ourselves, do I really mean it? Is this what I'm trusting in? Is this what I'm believing in? We need to ask ourselves if we've kind of gotten off track and we need to come back. So in a moment, some music's going to play for a little bit before we come together to take communion. 
I'm going to invite you to take a moment to ask yourself in the quietness of your own heart and in prayer between you and God, am I truly trusting in Jesus as my Savior? Do I really mean when I take the elements of communion that I need Jesus and that He is my Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great gift you have given us in communion. Father, sometimes we treat it too lightly. We don't understand the depths of the meaning. And yet, Father, I love in Scripture you talk about a childlike faith or people with little faith and you, you love them and you accept them. And so, Father, we don't have to have this all figured out, but we do have to trust you. And we do have to accept that your son died in our place. And so I pray in the quietness of this moment, Father, that each person here would evaluate their own thoughts, their own hearts, their own lives at this time, and ask themselves, have I really listened to the call to come to the Lord's table, to live in relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ? Thank you, Father, for the salvation that is ours through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.